Hi, Claire. Hi, Anar. And welcome back, everyone, to the Host Dispatch. We have a really exciting topic today. I am so excited to be interviewing you again, Anar, about cover design. And specifically today, we're going to talk about color. Yes, I'm so obviously just thrilled that I get to talk about, despite wearing just like black and white 90% of the time, (laughs) one of my favorite topics, which is color. I'm really passionate about color in terms of graphic design, nature, one of my secret passions and obsessions and something that I'm like actually really talented at is um, color correction in video. Mm. And it's something that I think about constantly. And I'm really excited to just share fun ideas, resources, just a little bit of history, and just talk about what color is, the power of color, and ways that I'm seeing the magic of color take over the world lately. Totally. This is definitely a summer of color, I would say, and we will get to it. I am very excited also by the fact that it seems like color has a really magical magnetic power when it comes to book covers. I know that when we table in person, especially we get to see that firsthand as people kind of gravitate towards our table uh, because your book covers that you design really do pop. But I want us to start at the most basic level because even though I've read about it many times, I don't fully understand. Anar, will you tell us what is color? Can you explain that to us? (laughs) Yes. So there could be a textbook on what color is and our interpretation of it, um, the history of color, how we're making new colors and we're seeing new colors. And there's just, it's so broad. It's so scientific. It's so interesting. But at the end of the day, we could start with just the visible color spectrum okay, and what our eyes are interpreting, which is just such a sliver of what is actually even visible to us. So a buzzword would be a wavelength. So we're seeing certain wavelengths and like, let's say that the spectrum of light is like the size of your like credit card. What is visible to humans is maybe the width of like a penny, like the skinny side of a penny. Yeah. So, you know, if that doesn't give you a crisis of like, well, what can't I see? It does. And also <laughs> I it trips me out because I'm like, how do we even know that? <laughs> yeah. It's sheer terror. If I just like sit there and let myself think about it, I'll fall apart. But, <laughs> but you know, it's like everything. You think about what an object is and our perception of reality. Like, yes, you can really go in deep. You can really come apart. Totally. Which, you know, I think every one of our podcasts, we provide our audience with something to completely derail them. So this is our gift to you. What you see is a sliver of reality and that pertains to color. Yeah. You know, I guess we could just chat about color combinations really quickly, but I don't know if y'all remember the blue dress, the white dress viral sensation from, you know, could be a decade ago. I've lost all sense of time, but it was like a internet sensation that split the divide of humanity that this dress created had so much to do with like each person's psychology, certain expectations, the color temperature of their phone if you're expecting cool colors or warm colors. So color, it's a psychological experience. I think that's exactly the right word. It's like psychological, but also there's a science component to it. But at the root of it, your eyes are doing the heavy lifting. They have rods and cones. Some folks you might know have different capabilities. Yeah. In seeing a little bit more color than the average and some you might like be familiar with colorblind folks have anomaly or disruption or even lack of certain rods and cones so they can't interpret or see certain 
specific colors. Um, so it really is very fascinating. Mm -hmm. But let's say we live in a world where we can 100% confirm we all have similar abilities and see pretty much the same spectrum of color. Our interpretations are pretty generalized. And within that, there's color theory, which is a really powerful concept that certain colors mean certain things. Right. Now, what's interesting about like color combinations is that you can subvert certain colors. So like if I pair kind of like a royal blue with like a carmine red, that feels very militant to me. So like mm -hmm. I lose the sultry and sexiness of my interpretation of reds or the like calmness and tranquility of like certain blues. So that's always something to keep in mind is that the pairing of colors can be subversive. Yeah, but even just the single colors, I think we bring personal associations to it. But then there's also these like kind of universal ideas about color. And I mean, I don't think we have the answer here today, but I'm just curious about where those associations come from and how much of it is sort of ingrained or how much of it is uh, learned. But yeah, we do we do think of of colors as having certain personalities and effects on us. Totally. I would say a lot of it is just evolutionary. Right. So something that I've been doing lately that has been really powerful for my mental health is that I'd read that surrounding yourself, almost bathing yourself in green mm. can be really good for your mental health and bring comfort. And so I've been doing like these green belt hikes every Saturday morning and I'm a different person over the weekend. I feel like cozy isn't the right word, but there's like a sense of tranquility yeah. that being surrounded by greenery every which way is really special. Totally. Um, and I think that like blue skies, blue ocean, like, but then there's like danger bugs that are red. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Certain dangerous things that you know to avoid because you're like that's like a dangerous snake yeah or a dangerous bug don't touch or eat it right it's interesting that like blue or green in the context of certain types of food would be like mold or another type of danger and I feel like there's also a contextual component like obviously our brains are pretty sophisticated so we know based on the context which colors are dangerous and how, like, you know, the sunset's very calming, but it's got all these yeah. fiery colors in it. Um, but we still have, like, an overall impression of, of certain colors, it seems. Yeah, there's definitely something there that evolution has ingrained in us. Mm -hmm. But now there's also, you know, graphic design and marketing are very new animals. And so much of it is, like, what have we been primed within our own lifetime to kind of anticipate or expect from certain products? You hear that like McDonald's and a lot of fast food chains have reds in their logo, like the bag, the Happy Meal is red with yellow. Like it's kind of an intensity. It wants you to like overeat it. <laughs> it wants you to be addicted to it. Um, to think about it constantly, like that is a very real thing that works. And then there's also an appropriateness to it. So you don't go to a hospital whose branding scheme is like garish, like pukey green and hot pink. Mm -hmm. Medical branding is often kind of uh, like a marine blue and more soothing colors um yeah like beige yeah so much beige <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's it's interesting what we expect from from businesses and how appropriate or inappropriate certain color mm -hmm. ideas in their branding or space might attract or yeah subvert the mm -hmm. person experiencing well 
I guess since we were talking about the visible spectrum and color combinations, I just want to mention the sky space at the University of Texas here in town. Um, The College of Fine Arts has an art installation that's been there for years. So I don't know. It might be permanent or semi-permanent. James Terrell uh, is the name of the artist. And sky space is basically a little half egg shell that you can walk inside and it has an aperture or an opening at the top that's somewhat small. (laughs) I don't know how big it is exactly because it's pretty high up there, but it's a little aperture through which you can see the sky. And then there are lights all around inside of this white eggshell space. And so you sit inside and around sunset or sunrise, those colored lights start coming on and gradually changing from one color to the next. And the effect is when you look through the aperture, the sky, when there's a different color light inside the white egg, the sky looks like it's a different color in relationship to the color you're immersed in. The example that you can sort of see on the website on the homepage for Sky Space is that these indigo and lavender colors of lights are are glowing inside the egg and the sky looks green. It is crazy. It's awesome. Definitely worth checking out if you want to kind of disrupt your normal color perception Um, because there's nothing happening in the aperture. You can see birds flying by and stuff. It's just an opening, but the sky completely changes colors to your, to your naked eye. Isn't that wild? Oh my gosh. I remember you telling me about this like early pandemic. So they had closed, but I haven't thought about that space. We should go. You would love it. Yes. You got to go at sunset. Let's be real. We're not going at sunrise, but sunset (laughs) is a good time to go. Wow. But this is exactly what we were talking about earlier, which is like color influences the way we see other colors. And so it's so cool that Terrell has done like kind of an artificial, but also a naturalistic hybrid of that example. Mm -hmm. Um, This looks beautiful. Yeah. And it's It's amazing to just sit in there and be like you were talking about being bathed in green. Um, This is a place where you can go be bathed in colors, too, which is also kind of a fun part about it is you're just inside a white dome and then it starts changing colors of its own accord. And the color changes are really gradual and soft. And so it feels very calming. Highly recommend. Wow, this is so beautiful. And in preparation for this episode, I have been thinking a lot about some of the incredible exhibits at the Blant Museum. I know that there's Mm -hmm. a couple of Ellsworth Kelly pieces that kind of remind me of what you're describing, your experience with the Terrell landmark. Yeah, it's a a must-see. Okay, find us there. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But the visual art component of that installation feels like it's like walking into a book cover (laughs) basically or walking into a piece of graphic design where yeah the the sort of personal or psychological effects of color kind of happen to you so yeah I don't know are you ready to dive into some of my questions in our oh my goodness yes please Well, first of all, I'm going to start really simple. Anar, do you have any personal philosophies about color that you find making their way into your designs or the way that you approach making your designs? Yeah, there's some very like foundational ideas around color. And I always suspect and hope that they're innate, but I think a lot of people need to like learn it. (laughs) Sometimes I'm like, this feels as natural as breathing when I'm thinking of color harmony. Um, And so I do see like, you know, maybe some local branding or when people kind of do it themselves, just kind of questioning my aversion to certain color combinations or Mm -hmm. certain typography used with specific color. It definitely feels like to me, color is like an appendage where I'm very visual. It's the first thing that is communicated to me and that I understand and process. And so I definitely am always striving for balance, for harmony, 
um, even when I'm using colors that are high contrast or like aggressive, there's always a need for balance. Yeah. And it's always interesting. Like if someone pairs just something that doesn't go at all, it feels like it was, it isn't well thought out. Yeah. And you have like a personal physical aversion. (laughs) Yeah. I'm offended is like a strong word, but it definitely is like eating something bad. There's something weird that happens where it's Mm -hmm. like, I'm not welcome here. I need to go. Yeah. And And I think it's just a simple perceptive awareness. As a person who can sing on key, I don't understand someone who can't hear that they're singing off key, if that makes sense. You know, like it's hard for me to imagine what that would be like to like (laughs) push air through your windpipes and not understand that you're not hitting a note. But Not like I can hit all notes. I can just tell if I am or not. (laughs) And some people can't. It's called being tone deaf. And (laughs) I wonder if that's a similar thing to being colorblind or even to a lesser degree, just not having that perceptive awareness of colors that are working together or not to whatever degree. Because, yeah, there's science behind it, right? Like you have a personal preference for certain spectrums and certain combinations, I'm sure. But uh the color wheel is a real visual, perceptive, psychological thing that like either satisfies or doesn't satisfy us based on colors matching up or being the right degree apart from one another on that color wheel. And I thank my mom for that information because I'm not um, a gifted designer, not with visual art at all, but she is. And so I just learned that from from talking with her. And I think that's so cool that you can actually be just technically correct with color when it comes to combining them in a way that feels pleasing. But then there's this other creative personal element to it. And that's the mystery part to me of how you how you have that innate sense of of what looks good that maybe wouldn't be so obvious on the color wheel. Yeah. So you can look at something and be like, this feels harmonious. These two colors next to each other. What is... This is the beauty of color is that, you know, there's a single color, but then there's the world of the relationships of colors with other colors. And so if you Google color wheel, you will find a million and one resources. But one of my favorite resources is using the Adobe Color website, and it will show you the different kinds of harmonies. So there's like monochromatic, which Mm -hmm. is like many shades of one hue. And you can explore like triad, complementary, split complementary. Um, I personally am a big fan of the double split and then pulling colors within that. And then there's square, compound, shades. And so you can start with one color that speaks to you and then develop a palette based on other color harmonies within Mm -hmm. that. So that's just like kind of a a really accessible tool. But yes, the color wheel is real. And there's, you know, certain rules within that that you want to make sure work in harmony or else it just looks messy and unbalanced. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's so many other variables, too. I mean, especially with book design. You mentioned typography earlier. Um, There's proportions. There's objects and other visual images on the cover. So many ways, textures, so many ways in which color can be kind of disrupted or changed. Our perception of it can change. Um, Yeah. Well, what's really, like, interesting to me about the covers that I've designed is that I feel like the colors of the book covers that we put out are very true to the author's and their ideas and their Mm -hmm. writing and their own truth. And so usually I begin with like working with primary colors when I'm exploring new ideas because it can be less about the color and more about the certain ideas that, that are represented in the book. But, you know, once we get a grasp of that, it's like, for example... Our forthcoming chapbook prize winner, Threesome in the Last Toyota Celica and Other Circus Tricks by Mick Powell, has 
first of all, it's vast. The lyric is is incredible. It's explosive, oh, yeah. super energetic, really <laughs> sexy, and there's something about it that feels really like Y2K, turn of the millennium. And with that in mind, I had just so many different color palettes that I was working with. And I'm excited for what our final cover is, which we'll release here pretty soon. But but I found myself playing with a lot of neon and like a lot of like, just like high contrast, almost glowy colors, because that's what some of the language in mix work brought forth in me. And like, I felt like those color schemes evoked some of the work, not all of the work, yeah, but definitely some of what just kind of stuck out to me. Yeah, there's definitely a 1999 like candy tones, lipstick, bubblegum kind of feel, even though the work is has so much emotional depth and there's so much just violence and desire and everything in between. Yeah, it's I was going to ask you, like, how do you find the identity of the poetry, like its color identity? But when you describe mix work and you talked about those neon colors and that sort of Y2K turn of the millennium feel, I totally understand that. I don't know that I could come to that like if I was trying to design the book cover right away, but it makes perfect sense to me on an intuitive level. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the beauty of color and graphic design is that it requires so much intuition and inner exploration Mm -hmm. and trying to make sense of the world and your interpretation of it and kind of hoping that that interpretation will land with whoever you would like to hold this book. So obviously that's not going to connect with everyone. You should never hope that your art lands in every single person's hand. That's never gonna gonna happen, but for the audience and that it's also a good representation of the of the artists that you're collaborating with. You know, we always joke that like working on covers and graphic design kind of makes me feral and that's kind of where you have to be to like sink into a primal space of being a loose entity. Being intuitive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting because it feels like a combination of that and things like color theory, which is almost mathematical. Um, there's there's such a range between um, like the more intuitive inspiration and the um, sort of science of it, which is really fascinating. Oh, well said. Yeah, it's it's an interesting dance. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Do you uh, have a favorite, like a personal favorite color palette to work with? Let's say you're not thinking about mix work specifically or anyone's work specifically. You could just design a cover with any palette. What would you choose? I love extremely high contrast, sharp, almost like colors you would find in like German expressionism or fauvism. Um, I work with a lot of like hot pinks and pukey greens when I'm just playing by myself. I love that. It's so much fun. It really speaks to me. There is also this just like in German Expressionism, like the point of using those kind of clashy, garish, sharp colors that are still in harmony with one another is to provide kind of a surrealistic perspective of what they're seeing. So they kind of were avoiding that classical style of, you know, Just like, this is exactly what nature looks like. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what a woman looks like. And then bringing in these kind of rebellious palettes. Um, So maybe I'm in a rebellious era. Yeah. I really like colors that kind of make you scrunch your nose and you're like, ugh. (laughs) (laughs) I do too. Kind of a 70s feel. They loved puke tones in the 70s and... I also love puke tones. I like puke tones combined with neon colors. It's uh, it shouldn't work, um, but it does. And I I agree. They're very surreal and imaginative. Maybe that's why we're drawn to that. 
Yeah. Um, psychedelic is another good word yeah. for the color combinations that I enjoy. You know, in like Fernando's book, which is that hot pink mm-hmm. and the pukey green, I have seen people float <laughs> like cartoon characters. They just get like lifted up by a cloud <laughs> and float across a stadium or something to hold that book and it's really enchanting. It's really amazing to see the power of specific colors just like put spells on people. Yeah. There's a magnetism to certain colors. There is. And it's interesting that those like to me it's a neon kind of lighter slightly lighter than grass green and a bubblegum pink. But the interesting thing is that it's a gradient. So they mm. meet in the middle and they blend, which is where things get pukey and dicey. <laughs> and it looks really cool. Like those two colors next to each other might be like you might see that in the toy aisle at Target or something. But when they start blending together is where it's like fascinating that that can happen and be Ugh. so magnetic. I didn't even think to bring gradients to this conversation, but that's, uh, before we get too far, I want to talk about Barbie. I hope you all forgive me. (laughs) I promise that I have some very fascinating things to talk about regarding Barbie, but Barbie. Let's do it. So if you're a human being that has maybe been out in the world or even looked at your phone once you're going to notice, like, everything's kind of pink lately. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, you don't have to apologize for talking about Barbie because everyone is already talking about Barbie. Everyone's (laughs) talking about Barbie. Y'all, I went to have a lobster roll, and they were like, do you want the Barbie roll? It was a pink lobster roll, and it was delicious. Um... It was so, so good. Shout out to Garbo's. But the really fascinating thing to me about Barbie in this moment is they, of course, have an incredible marketing team. Mm. But the pink is doing its own work. Mm -hmm. And when I went to see Barbie, I made sure that I had some very fun colors and textures. And of course, pink. My spouse wore pink. Um, I'm pretty sure everyone in the theater was wearing pink. And it's been really interesting to see that businesses completely not affiliated with the movie industry that have not been paid to promote, that have not been asked to sponsor, are coming out with pink products, pink items. Everything is Barbie pink. Everybody wants to monetize off of all of the explosion of pink and I gotta say like it's a little gross capitalism is <laughs> a whole issue but it really is delightful to just like have permission to be as like pink and vibrant and fun and girly as possible because that's something that our society definitely tries to put a damper on yeah or it has its own story about that mm-hmm. and that's not the story that you and I for example would would have about that color um yeah I haven't seen Barbie yet and I'm very curious we don't need to talk about the movie but I am curious how if at all it complicates the genderedness of Barbies and pink. And I know that yeah. some of the memes and like you said, the advertising, which is just prevalent everywhere in the world right now that I've seen shows a lot of Ryan Gosling in full pink. So I'm excited to see it and unpack that for myself. But yeah, I, I know that you had some fun facts for us about about that color. Yes. So two fun facts in particular. One is that During the production of Barbie, there was a shortage of pink paint because they used so much of it to build the set. Oh my God. (laughs) That's crazy. Wow. I remember reading about it when it happened and I was just like, oh my God, that's a lot of pink. Um, (laughs) The color is known as Barbie pink. And I stumbled upon this really fascinating Washington Post article titled, Does Barbie's Pink Look Fake? It may be Earth's oldest organic color. 
What? That is crazy. Yeah. I almost can't believe that. (laughs) Super cool. I can only believe it because of you. Uh, You got me into collecting rocks and they are thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of years old. And some Mm -hmm. of my rocks have Barbie pink in them. Some really fascinating rock science of how we got certain vibrant pigments in minerals. But a little snippet about where maybe the pink and Barbie pink comes from, from this article. The pink pigments came from the chlorophyll of fossilized cyanobacteria, a blue-green algae that once inhabited an ancient ocean in the Teodino Basin in Mauritania. The pigments were originally dark green, but the chlorophyll fossilized over thousands of years into a class of molecules called parifirins. Anyway, that's pink. That's crazy. That's a lot of big words in that paragraph, but I I feel like the chlorophyll fossilizing, the green and blues fossilizing into something pink, it immediately reminded me of what happens to copper, which is the opposite of something mm-hmm. sort of on the warm spectrum copper color going to, you know, the color of the Statue of Liberty, that kind of algae green. That's an interesting mirror there in what can happen over time to these pigments. And I wonder if there's any science behind it, but would be so bizarre to see fossilized chlorophyll. Do you think that's what's in some of the stones that you've collected or maybe it's just something similar? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what's happening but you know with rocks and minerals there's so many fascinating elements like I recently received a rock that looked like it was bubbling because in the moment that it became encased in this other stone it was bubbling and then it cooled very quickly so yeah I mean you're adding heat we've all cooked before You know, red meat turns brown when heat is applied. Certain things change color when cooled or when oxidized. So there's definitely really cool color ideas within the scope of geology. Color is chemistry. It can be broken down to pigments, which are made of compounds (laughs) like carotenoids we all hear that it's easy to remember because it has the word carrot in it (laughs) carotenoids are the orange e ones (laughs) or the the reddish ones so those are good for you you know it's good to eat foods that are that color we were taught that like you want to eat the color spectrum yummy but who would have thought pink was one of the oldest colors or the oldest color i never would have thought it but i will say that it makes me really happy. Um. <laughs> yeah, because it's not just a synthetic color associated with capitalism, because I know you love pink. It's like got deep, deep natural geological roots, which is cool. It makes me feel like women can take it all back. Like <laughs> <laughs> there's something really hopeful about it, which is really silly to say. I'm tearing up, you guys. I'm, I'm really happy pink was there at the beginning, but I'll calm down. Actually, no, I'm going to ramp this up. (laughs) So on the subject of pink, I want to talk to you guys about this book that I stumbled upon. Actually, I think Claire, you stumbled upon it and was like, Anar, you're going to like this book. So we were a book woman there for a really great reading here in Austin. And there's this book called The Secret Lives of Colors which is such a gem and it's such a delight. I like have flipped through the different colors depending on my mood. So it's something that you can just pick up and put down. And Claire, I know you were wondering kind of which entries stuck out to me and maybe. Yeah, well, let's first kind of tell people what it is. It's a book called The Secret Lives of Color. And the description says that it's a deep dive into 75 different colors, and there's a little tail for each shade. Um, So kind of each color has its own story, right? Yes. 
I haven't really read the book, so I'm curious, are those stories about like the origins of the color or are they fictional? These are real stories. These are historical. Um, okay. They range in terms of like context of like where we see this color, but they're really, they're like one or two page long entries, really well-researched and really fun. Yeah, it sounds amazing. It really is such a like fun tool to just have on my desk. But one of my favorite entries is in the color pink called Shocking Pink. <laughs> and I'd love to read this entry to you if yeah. you don't if you don't mind. That sounds um, so fun. It's relatively brief, but you know I'm a big historical Hollywood lover and yeah this all just really resonated with me I was really excited you're going to recognize some really great names in here um, that we've mentioned on the podcast before Uh, so buckle up nice (laughs) so this is the entry for shocking pink known to Winston and Clementine Churchill as the imbroglio Daisy Fellows was a shocking woman indeed Born in Paris in the dog days of the 19th century, she was the only daughter of a French aristocrat and Isabelle Blanche Singer, the sewing machine heiress. In the 1920s and 30s, she was a notorious transatlantic bad girl, dosing her ballet teacher with cocaine, editing the French Harper's Bazaar, carrying on a succession of high-profile affairs, and throwing parties to which she only invited pairs of mortal enemies. (laughs) She was... (laughs) She was, according to an artist acquaintance, the beautiful Madame de Pompadour of the period, dangerous as an albatross. To Mitch Owens, a writer for the New York Times, she was a Molotov cocktail in a Mame Bosher suit. One of her numerous vices was shopping, and it was one of her purchases from Cartier that unleashed this scandalous shade of pink onto the world. The bright pink Tete de Bellier also known as Ram's Head, a 17.47 carat diamond had once belonged to Russian royalty. Fellows wore it one day when meeting one of her favorite designers, the inventive surrealist courtier Elsa Schiaparelli. Fellows was one of the only two women brave enough to wear the infamous high heel hat designed in collaboration with Salvador Dali. Schiaparelli herself was the other one. It was love at first sight. The color flashed in front of my eyes, Chaparelli wrote later. Bright, impossible, impudent, becoming, life-giving, like all the lights and the birds and the fish in the world together. A color of China and Peru, but not of the West. A shocking color, pure and undiluted. She immediately incorporated it into the packaging for her first perfume, released in 1937. The bottle designed by the surrealist painter, Leonor Fini, was modeled after the voluptuous torso of the actress Mae West and came in a distinctive hot pink case. Its name, of course, was Shocking. The color became something of a touchstone for the designer, cropping up again and again in her collections and even in her own interior decoration. Her granddaughter, the model and actress Marissa Berenson, remembers Schiaparelli's bed being covered with heart-shaped, shocking pink pillows. Age has not dimmed the color's appeal. In the brash of 1980s Christian Lacroix often paired it with bright red. Most, however, use it only sparingly. A notable exception can be found in the film Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. In 1953, the costume designer William Trevilla was urgently called to the set. The filmmakers were panicking about its star, Marilyn Monroe, as a nude calendar featuring the actress had just been released and the press was in a slavering uproar. The studio decided her assets needed to be more jealously guarded. I made a very covered dress, Trivia later wrote. A very famous pink dress with a big bow on the back. It is this outfit Monroe wears when singing the tune that helped seal her place in Hollywood's firmament. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. No doubt, Daisy Fellows, by then a determinedly 63-year-old, wholeheartedly agreed. Wow, that's so fun. (laughs) It's so disgusting and 
interesting and <laughs> playful. I love that the surrealists are involved because, like we were talking earlier, this color screams surrealism, especially in certain combinations. But I'm also just imagining shocking pink because I haven't seen this this entry. What would you would you say it's close to Barbie pink? It's a little it's a little darker. Yeah. Oh, it's fuchsia. It's kind of fuchsia. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. It's definitely a bit more fuchsia. It's followed by fluorescent pink and preceded by fuchsia. So okay, right in the middle. It's in between there. Wow. I love that. That's so fun. It's it's like a little snack of information. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Mae West. I'm a huge fan of Leonor Feeney. Obviously Marilyn Monroe in this famous colored dress. What mm-hmm. a thrill. <laughs> oh man, I can't believe that this book only has 75 entries. I feel like they could make a series of Secret Lives of Color. I would buy it in a heartbeat. Yeah. Please please keep <laughs> writing. Um thank you for this gift, Cassia Saint Clair. And I know you're just having fun. It it's just so fun to read that book and and to flip around in it, but as a designer, do you feel like there's any ways in which it's kind of changed or modified the way you think about color? This is a relatively new addition to my collection. Um, I think that I definitely just appreciate having certain ideas affirmed or being enlightened about the history of certain colors. Yeah, I haven't designed anything since acquiring this book that I was like, needing to cross-reference with like an original color palette but I definitely will like cross-reference in the future just to make sure that it wasn't like problematic maybe (laughs) change the the color a little bit or something Mm -hmm. if if there's a some dark history interesting yeah it's just giving more like unexpected context I guess for each color that you might use and color and history color history like, it's it's really, really fascinating. Obviously, this book is such a tremendous resource. But I also just wanted to mention that, like, our ability to document color is, like, a new thing in the grand scheme of humanity. I was reading about how the color magenta was kind of a different color because there was this kind of miscommunication. And there's been some really great tools Um that have been developed, you know, in the last 200 years where 200, 300 years where like now we can be a little bit more consistent. Um, There's the Werner color book where Mm -hmm. he used nature and would tell you that this is the color of like this very specific tree and then like do like a painting that corresponds with like where you see this color recurring in nature but most recently, we have Pantone color chips. They're really expensive to, like, get your own set. But that's kind of just, like, when you want to make something official, you refer to the Pantone color chips to make sure that your color is indeed correct. But that's the numbering system, right, that we would use on on any, like, graphic design software, right? Like, when each color is assigned a number... That's a Pantone thing, or is that something else? So, so this is the the really awful thing, um, Claire. You've witnessed this too, where something will look like a specific color on my computer mm-hmm. and on my phone, and it'll come different from the printers because they're working with mixing colors high-end printers um and I've seen the people at the printers like they're artists they're like calibrating this color to be perfect and what we hoped for but when you're working with color on your computer you do have to like calibrate it a certain way but that's a huge problem with inconsistency is that our technology And our screens can be showing us, even though we have a very specific color code, that that might not be what's being printed. I think we get pretty close, but I know that we've seen it where something kind of looks darker than we expected or it looks 
different in sunlight than it does in the shadow. Um, it's really fascinating. But yeah, we have not exactly perfected mm. calibrating color. It almost doesn't seem possible. So the numbering system for colors, is it just different from one resource to the next? I think now we're collectively all in agreement that the Pantone colors are like the resource gotcha. or the source. But yeah, in the past, like pre-Pantone, it was just kind of this like hoping <laughs> that we're all talking about the same colors. But I do think that like this development and like as we move forward um, with technology and communicating with the rest of the world that there is um, almost like an expansion of the conversations that we can have regarding color. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very, very special place to be in currently in society. Uh, especially as like our associations with color change. I mean, the Werner color book is using nature as the taxonomical system for cataloging colors. But now we have so many, <laughs> so many other ways that we think about color outside of nature um so yeah it feels like it'll be really fascinating to see how those kinds of different dictionaries of color come to be yeah so anar are there any color resources for designers out there that you personally recommend especially ones that might be a little bit off the beaten path yeah i mean there's just so many resources you can Google color wheel. YouTube is a really great resource for understanding um, color theory. Um, there's a lot of really incredible graphic design books out there. Just kind of what I've enjoyed having on my desk lately has been this dictionary of color combinations, which before 1933, the concept of color combinations was not even in the conversation. So this is so cool. Um, It's a tiny book and it's totally worth it, but it's the original six volume work of Heishoku Sokan. And it's just this like tiny book with a bunch of little color palettes Mm. that I don't experience personally in my day to day. Um, So. Yeah, they're so they're so beautiful. And this came out in the in the 1930s, right? Originally, the six volumes. 1933, yes. Um, I was just trying to kind of place, like, it's interesting to think that those color combinations may not seem very typical to us now, but I wonder if they were then or if, if it's, like, sort of a palette of the era or if it's specific to the designer. But I think that's... In any case, it doesn't really matter. It's just kind of inspirational to to flip through and see them now. Yeah, it's it's such a special, special little tool. Um, and it's also fun to just kind of see a palette and ask yourself, what does this make me feel? Mm-hmm. What does this remind me of? Um, and that can be like a really good tool to explore your own intuition and your own interpretation of color and pairings yeah. of color combinations. And and to your point of of colors looking different on a screen or when you print them out and the frustration of that, I feel like as a designer it would also be nice to have these various resources that some some of which are digital. Like you said, you can just google the color wheel, you can look at YouTube, but you can also have these paper books in front of you where the ink is creating another effect for your eye and the texture of the page. Um, I think I would personally want to gravitate towards that, you know, object I can hold in my hands and, you know, experiment with looking at it in different lights. Um, Seems like there's a lot of cool things you could do with a physical, a physical book that you might not be able to do with a screen. Yeah. And another, like, a fun little hack that I have is if you're out in the world and you're like, oh my God, I love the colors of this building I love the colors of this sign or the colors of this restaurant like if you're just out in the world and you're admiring a color you can 
take a photo. Let's say in a perfect world, you get the picture. It feels right. It looks correct. Um, If you place an image in Adobe Illustrator or there's even, if you just Google like, what color is this? (laughs) (laughs) You can upload an image and it'll pull the colors for you. But I'm afraid of the internet. (laughs) So I just use Adobe Illustrator. I'll upload an image and then pull with the eyedropper the color that I'm I'm drawn to mm-hmm. um, or set of colors and you can develop a palette that way. That's so cool. So yeah, there's just a million resources. Again, I love the Adobe color wheel is a really good resource, but just explore, play, question, really be in tune with your feelings and yes. Okay. So Claire just took out the, um, Ethel Calhoun's Tarot is Color Tarot deck, which is a whole other level of an, of color and intuition um, in itself, which if you're a witch that loves color, hell yeah, <laughs> get ready to have your world rocked. Um, but we love Fulger Press, who is who put out that deck, and you should definitely go and support them. Yeah, that can kind of combine... This adventure in color uh, with our previous adventure in inspiration um, when we talked about book design last time, uh, I feel like that deck could be very inspirational towards your color explorations. Yes, I think that's it. I hope that we've confused you (laughs) to no ends. We've excited you um, that you'll now question where does that color in the Barbie movie come from Mm -hmm. and realize that women should rule it all. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That was the real message the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing some really fun questions for me, Claire. I had a blast. Oh my God. Thank you for enlightening me. This was so much fun. We'll, uh, we'll catch you all next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.